0: Some of you. Alright, turn to your neighbor and say, God is good all the time. All right. And all the time, God is good. She's got to loosen you up. In fact, turn shake somebody's hand. You guys just are just like all pulled in. Shake somebody's hand. Tell them they're got. Good morning, greet one another, good to see you here. All right, I've got uh, got Katie uh, doing some notes. How many of you do not have a set of notes? Anybody here? All right, anybody? Okay, just a few of you. Okay, so you're okay. So when she comes in, you wave your hand and, and holler at her and tell her thanks. All right, here we are. Uh, for some of you, you've just dropped in and uh, you're going to say, What in the world did I get myself into? That's all right. You're just kind of in the middle of it. Last week we talked about inclusivism. And uh, the question that we're answering in this series, it's, it's there it's in your notes. What this series is all about is three questions in one Is Jesus the only way to salvation? Is Jesus? I don't think there's a more important question that can be asked in these postmodern times. Look at these guys that are in college, whether it's your kids, even in, in grade school. There is no more important question than this. Is Jesus the only way to God? Is he the only way to salvation? But in that one question, there's three other questions that we have been answering. The first question is there, will anyone experience eternal conscious torment under God's wrath in hell? And we saw that the Bible and Jesus agree that yes, that is true. We then asked, is the work of Jesus necessary to escape that condemnation? And we saw indeed, yes, that Jesus is the only way to be saved from eternal torment in hell. But that raises this third and probably the most difficult question of all. Is conscious faith in Jesus necessary for salvation? Is conscious faith in Jesus necessary for salvation? And that is where the battle and where the questions and where the real struggle is today in Christianity, particularly among even Bible-believing Christians. And what it concerns is the destiny of those who have never heard what about those who have never heard there's 6.8 billion people on the planet and i think i am correct in this the estimates say one third of those am i right Stephen? one third approximately one third of those have never heard the name of jesus so how are they going to be saved Will they be saved? If, if, if what we said is true, first of all, if they are not saved, they are destined for eternal conscious, eternal torment in hell for all of eternity. So there is much on the line. Secondly, if Jesus, the person and work of Jesus is necessary for salvation and they have never heard even of the name of Jesus, we've got this tremendous burden we have a problem we 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 should be concerned about that and perhaps the biggest problem might be that we're not concerned about it you know maybe that's the biggest problem of all that we go about our lives secure in our salvation confident in our faith know that we will not face eternal judgment but are we staying up at nights are we in the during the day thinking what about these people what about who's going to tell them? How will they be saved? Well, we have all sorts of answers. Uh, notice at the top of your notes, uh, we have a New Age spiritualist uh, that is personified and very uh, popular influenced by Oprah Winfrey who says there couldn't possibly be one way to God. I am a Christian who believes there are certainly many more paths to God other than Christianity. Now, listen, she's not an oddity. She, she, in fact, is becoming a growing majority of people who would profess Christianity is right for me. And, of course, you now first have to ask, how do you define Christianity? Is it, is it biblical Christianity? But the point is, I claim this is right for me, but there are many paths for others. So I am a free-thinking Christian who believes that, who believes in my way, but I don't believe it's the only way with 6 billion, billion people, at that time 6 billion is now 6.8 and growing, who have never heard. So that's where she's, she's saying, look, Based on this, and this is a reality, we cannot deny, this is a fact, based on this fact that there are are so many billions who have never heard, there must be more than one way. Now, you say, well, that's Oprah Winfrey, we can set her aside, but what about an evangelical scholar, theologian, who at one time in his life defended the inerrancy of the Bible, that defended the, 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 the conservative, fundamental teaching that you and I and we affirm as a church. What about a guy like that who then says this? Notice what Clark Pinnock says. The conviction is growing in evangelical circles that God is not planning to cast into hell the majority of the race who, through no fault of their own, have had no opportunity to become Christians. There are others, of course, who still wish to assert assert that this will happen. For them, the love of God is not higher than, but on a level with God's freedom and wrath. Now, that's the core of what we, we need to address. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying this. Hey, I believe somehow these people are going to be saved because God is a God of love. But there are others who say, that God is prepared to cast them into hell because His love is on the same level as His freedom or His sovereignty and with His wrath. Now, there is the rub now this is not going to be an easy I'm just telling you this isn't easy this isn't Jesus loves me this I know and and just lay me down to sleep and all's going to be fine when I get done with this lesson you may disagree with some of what I say that's fine I think I may disagree with some of what I say but you know what and and, and, and the reason I say that is because you know what this, this isn't my I, this is the mind of God this is God's sovereign plan and because I do believe that God's sovereignty, and God's wisdom is on the same plane and the same level of importance as God's love and God's wrath, that means we've got some difficult things to present in less than an hour. So this isn't all going to happen today. We're going to move through this for the next couple weeks. But let's dive in. What does the inclusivist say? They say, is conscious, to the question, is conscious faith necessary for salvation? Inclusivism, which means including, including everybody. They want to include everybody. They say no. They say no. And here's what they would say. Those who have never heard of Jesus, but sincerely respond in faith to God, based on the light they have. They don't have Jesus. They've never heard the gospel. They don't know the name of Christ. All they have is creation. They have their conscience. And they have their culture, which a major part of culture is what? Religion. So they have conflicting, conflicting world religions. Which for the majority of these people who have never heard, Buddhism, Hinduism, Hinduism, in Islam. So what the inclusivists is going to say about them is that if they sincerely respond in faith to God based on the light they have whether it's looking at creation whether it's their own conscience or whether it's the conflicting world religions that they're a part of their culture they will be saved on the basis of the work of Christ even though they don't know him. Thus some inclusivists talk about anonymous Christians you know, Buddhists are Christians in waiting. You know, they're, they're, they're believers who just don't know that they're Christians. And, uh, you know, I don't know what a Buddhist would think of that. I, I would take offense to that if I was them, but that's how they think. These are basically evangelical pluralists. Why do I say that? They think there's more than one way to God, but they believe that ultimately it's based on who? On Christ, so they think, yeah, Jesus is the only way. They would affirm these verses that we're going to see. Jesus is the only way. There is no other name. It's just that there's many paths to being saved by Him. Are you with me? You got to shake your head, yes, because if I've already lost you, we're in trouble. Are we okay? Does that make sense? Well, it may not make sense, but do you understand what I'm saying? All right. Well, let's dive in here. I've, I've got the exclusivism. I got the. We went through this last week. The dividing point from a pluralist is... A pluralism would say, yeah, there's many paths to God. But the dividing point is, no, Christ is necessary. But the dividing point between an inclusivist and what we would be as exclusivist or restrictivist, ones who say there's only one way and you must hear the gospel and believe, is that we say faith in Jesus is necessary. So here they say Jesus is necessary. (coughs) But here we say faith in Jesus is necessary to be saved. Now, obviously, if this is true, then what what, what do we need to do about these people? What? we got to tell them. we gotta, We got to move heaven and earth just like God did in the book of Jonah. we got to get committed to telling them because that's their only hope. But if this is true, that Jesus will save them even if they never hear then what do we need to do? Nothing. Bottom line, not much. All right, so let's dive in. Now, notice under that uh, chart there, it says this. Both universalism, the belief that all will be saved, and pluralism, many paths to salvation, are advanced by means of this teaching of inclusivism. That somehow many... Because here's the thing. If you can be saved apart from Christ through creation, conscience, or culture, then who's really lost? I mean, who will really be lost? I mean, who isn't sincere about something in here? Who doesn't believe that there is a God? Not very many people. And so you're talking about practically a universalism of salvation... But also, you're talking about a pluralism because there's many ways, particularly the most extreme inclusivists would say, yes, these world religions are pathways into salvation. They just don't know that Christ is the one to save them. Now, what's behind this? Two axioms, and that's all we want to look at today. Two axioms, which are simply basic propositions that are assumed to be true. So when an inclusivist looks at this question, What about those who has never heard? They come up with two principles, and and only two principles that drive. One is God's love, and the other is the necessity of Jesus. So they answer this complex problem with two basic principles that drive them. God loves these people and wants them to be saved, and Jesus is necessary. Now, with those two principles, we've got to figure out a way to get them saved. Well, of course, you're going to come to this. We've got to come up with some ways. So let's, let's break this down. First axiom that drives inclusivists. Axiom number one, the love of God for all people and His desire for universal salvation. God's love for all people and his desire for universal salvation. Now, if, you're a, if you know your Bible, your first response to that is, what's wrong with that? Don't we believe that? I mean, are you going to counter that, Chris? I mean, what, what, what's going on here? I thought we were the good guys. These are the bad guys. What is wrong with that statement? Well, basically, there's nothing wrong with it on the face of it. It's what they do with it. It's how they interpret it. So here they are, in their own words, the two great standouts in in, uh, in evangelical, evangelicalism that support this are two guys, Clark Pinnock and John Sanders. So let's listen to what they say. For, here's this first one tells you everything about what th- they mean by the love of God for all people and His desire for universal salvation. Quote: Divine grace and truth are found outside the church and Christian revelation. Anybody got a problem with that? See, God's love is so great. There must be, there must be grace, truth. There must be salvation outside of Christianity and Christian revelation, which is what? The Bible. You've just set the Bible aside. All right. So this is what they mean by it. Now, notice this: support for inclusivism arises from the growing recognition among Christians of the priority of God's love relative to other issues. So, if you would say to an inclusive, "What about God's wrath?" Well, that yeah, God God has wrath, but what's more important? God's love. Yeah, but but what about the fact that God is sovereign in salvation and chooses some to be said? So- oh, well, we don't know about that, but we know god's love see whatever issue you bring up it's trump by what by god's love his love in his character is greater than any other aspect of his character relative to other issues large numbers are coming to accept that at the top of the hierarchy of christian truths and of primary importance is the will of god for the salvation of the race Once you say that God's number one hierarchy of top issues is to see everyone saved, that is his greatest, greatest importance. Well, then everything else becomes relative to that. Now, when you first hear that, you're like, well, wait a minute. I thought that's, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave me, you know, salvation of people, isn't that God's heartbeat? Well, it's his heartbeat, but it's not the only aspect of his character. It's not the only aspect of his plan. It's not the top of the hierarchy. At least I think I'll show you that from the Bible. Notice the conviction. I've already read this quote from the top, the growing conviction that God's not planning to cast into hell the majority of the race. Notice underneath that, the quote, again by Pinnock. I think it is God's universal salvific will. uh, Scholars talk in funny language. God's universal desire that all be saved that gives inclusivism basic plausibility and makes restrictivism or inclusivism, position of the narrow way, only through hearing of Christ, seem unlikely. It is the presupposition that gives rise to wider hope and inclusive theory and should be acknowledged. Here's what he's saying. Everything in their belief stems from this. So if this proposition is not true, that God's love, is the drive then their whole position according to Pinnock, who's their great advocate? Then the whole position falls down. Would you agree from that quote that that's what he's saying? He's saying, "Look, this is it. This is the presupposition." Now, notice John Sanders, the the other. Uh, guy that is influencing people. Notice what he says. When discussing the destiny of the unevangelized, I begin with two main teachings. That's where we get these two axioms. The first concerns Jesus being the ultimate revelation of God and the particular person through whom God provides redemption for the human race. Jesus is the unique and unsurpassable revelation of God and is the only Savior. And then he gives biblical proof for that. This one right here that we're calling number two. He starts with that, all right? Biblical, that's fine. We can handle that. We believe that. The other biblical teaching that is extremely important, but according to Pinnock, it's not extreme. It is the most important, is concerns God's magnanimous, I knew I'd mess this up, magnanimous, that's a wild world, God's magnanimous, magnanimous desire to save every human being. Jesus died for the sins of all people. Then he left Scripture. Moreover, God wants the salvation Jesus provides to be made available to all people. Okay. It is God's will for everyone to share in this blessing. Okay. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, there's a lot in what I just read, that last quote. I mean, is that not biblical? That's biblical and true. Again, the problem is not. I'm not refuting what he just said. I'm not refuting that. It's what they do with it. It's how God is going to accomplish it. We agree that God is up here and he desires all that Sanders said. What we disagree is, how is it going to happen? Is it going to happen without them knowing Christ? Is it going to happen apart from a missionary, a preacher, a, a disciple witnessing? Is it going to happen apart from them knowing Christ? Or will it happen through fulfilling the Great Commission? Are you with me? All right, hang in there. Let's look at it. Let's look at some... Because let me raise some questions. Hey, we agree basically with what he said. But the question is, how has God determined that his desire for all to be saved to be fulfilled? How has he determined to do that? Is it apart from his sovereign grace, his own choosing? Is it apart from that? Is it apart from his divine choice in Christ? I mean, here he did all this in Christ, but it's okay if no one knows about him? I mean, here we're seeing the name above all names. Oh, no, that's all right. You don't have to know that name. Is it apart from hearing the gospel of Jesus and consciously placing one's faith in him? Also, also the question must be raised, has God commanded that his desire... That salvation in Christ be a made... How has God commanded His desire for salvation to be made available to all? We don't disagree that God desires salvation. But how has He commanded that to be done? Is it apart from the preaching of the gospel? Is it apart from the, the Great Commission? Here's Jesus' last words. All authority in heaven and earth have been given unto me. Go make disciples of all nations... But realize this, that there's saving hope in other religions, that those that you never reach are okay. Do you see? It's how he's going to do that. It's how he's going to do that. Uh, Also, think about this. Is God's desire that all be saved the same as his choice to save all people? Just because God desires to save all, does that mean he's actually going to save all people? The implication here seems like he must, because otherwise he's not a god of love. Do you see how they put us in a corner? It, it, once you declare this is the greatest thing, you're in a corner. The question is, is it a corner that God actually puts us in? And is, first of all, can God ever be placed in a corner? You know, can we ever put God in a corner? Well, he wouldn't be much of a god if we did. Here's the question. Is God's compassion to save such that he will save all by any means without exception? Or is his compassion and salvation shown in his sovereign choice to save some in Christ without distinction? We'll talk more about that in this lesson. Finally, can God, here's, the, here's the crux of the question. Think about this. Can God be both loving and just and not save all sinners? That's really the heart of this issue. Can God be loving and just and not save all sinners? The inclusivist wants to say, no, that's, he's a God of love, so he has to include. He has to save. You know, if not all, then as many as possible by as many means uh, uh, based on Christ. Here's another question. Are not sinners themselves accountable to respond to the light they do have? And here's another question. Do any of them respond positively to the light they have? Here's the question. They say, hey, they can be saved through these three things, and that's all they've got. If they haven't heard from Christ, then that's all they have as a witness to who God is. Here's the question, and we'll answer this in a couple weeks. Do, Do any of these billions respond yes to any of these three witnesses that God has given them? What does the Bible say? See I, mean, we, see, I don't know, and you don't know. The only one who knows is who God, and we only know what He knows if He reveals it in His Word. So the question becomes, in the weeks to come, we need to study and find out what does God say about the billions who have only these three, and how do they respond to it? So, okay, have I stretched your categories enough? All right, let's look at some passages used by inclusivists to support this axiom that God desires all to be saved out of a heart of love. Let's look at some of the passages. There's, many, there's several passages they use. I picked out three of the most common. The first is John 3.16. Uh, where else would you go? For God so loved the what? The world. That's John 3.16. Let's look at it. Turn to it in your Bible. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Now, right there, an inclusivist would be fine with that. In fact, that's everything that they're saying. God's love, He loves all sinners, and Jesus is necessary. He gave His Son. The problem is they don't quote or they don't focus on... What's the rest of that verse say? Help me out. That whoever believes... Okay, they're okay with that. Faith is necessary it's just not faith in who. Jesus, but what's John 3:16 say? Yes, God is love. Yes, God provided Christ that whoever believes in who? In him. You got to believe in him. And notice should not perish. So right there is this God of love that just says, you got to believe in my son, but if you don't believe in my son. In fact, even if you're not believing in my son right now, where are you headed? To hell. So we can just go to John 3, 16. I don't know why this lesson was so complex. We could have just sat right there. But has everlasting life. Okay, second passage. Uh, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise. Some men count slackness, but His long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Now, that would be, if I was an inclusivist, I'd camp out there. That's a pretty strong thing. Hey, God desires, it's a negative and a positive. He wants it for everyone, all right? Third passage, 1 Timothy 2, 3. 1 Timothy, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But look at that verse. It's good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. Inclusivists love that. Well, we love that. That's God's heart but notice there's an and there and come to the knowledge of the truth salvation in that verse God's desire for salvation in that verse is not separated from the knowledge of the truth and we know as you read through first and second Timothy who's that truth personified in who is the truth I am the way the truth it's Jesus so what he's saying is, yeah, God desires all men to be saved, but not apart from a knowledge of who Jesus is. So we've just looked at three verses, kind of taking those apart, but let's let's break it down even further. Notice in your notes it says, maintain, we must maintain the biblical tension of John 3 16 and John three seventeen through twenty-one. Because here's the problem. You can take any verse out of a context and make it say whatever you want. You can take any verse about God's love and then say that determines everything. But these statements, the three verses I just read to you, have a context. And the larger context is the rest of the Bible. What is the rest of the Bible? So let's just look at John 3.16. So turn back to John 3.16. I've already shown you just from that verse alone, it, it counters everything that they say but let's move on down look at verse 17 for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world what through him might be saved now they're okay with that because that's that's kind of their point i mean they like that yes god out of love sent his son he's necessary that through him but it doesn't say in in their they're thinking they would say yeah but it doesn't say they have to know him it doesn't say they have to Believe in him. Well, yes, it does. John three sixteen does. But look at John three eighteen. He who believes what in him. So how is God going to save the world through him? By those who believe in him. Now notice, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe, and the implication is in him, because he just said that, is condemned already. So these people aren't out here believing and just waiting to know about Jesus. They do not believe, therefore, they are already under God's wrath. And if nothing in their situation changes, when they die, they will go to a Christless eternity of eternal suffering. Uh, Notice he goes on... Already, and why are they already condemned? Because he has not believed. Now notice in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I mean, why are they condemned? It's they are condemned because they do not believe in the name. Not of Buddha, not of Hindu, not of Muhammad, but they don't believe in the name of Jesus. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. What do this, these billions love? They loved what we loved before we were saved. Darkness. They're not like, oh, there's creation. I want to know God. They're not saying, oh, my conscience tells me I don't measure up. That's a, you know, I need a savior. They're not saying that. They love the darkness. Why? Because everyone. Practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds might be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Okay, so you've got to maintain that biblical tension. Plus, let me throw this out. In John 13, Jesus has these words. On the night before he's betrayed, he says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own Who were in the world. Here's the thing. Does God love the world? Does he love sinners? Yeah. John 3, 16. Does God have a greater love for his children? Yes. 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 Let me ask you. Do you love sinners? Yeah. Do you have a greater love for your own children? Okay. Now, if that's okay for us, why is that not okay for God? See, why can't God have levels of love and levels of hate and levels of rejection? Yeah, look, God loves the world, but he has a love for his own that is greater than even his love for the world. And you see it there in John 13 1. He loved his own to the end, to the uttermost limits. All right. That's John three sixteen. Now let's look at first Peter three nine. We read first Peter three nine or second, I'm sorry, I get that all confused all the time. Second Peter three nine. 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Boy, that's, that seems pretty inclusive. But then you got to understand that God does not desire anyone to perish and go to hell. He's willing for all people to come to repentance, but that doesn't mean he's obligated to grant all people repentance. I desire this, but I don't have to give it. And he's not unjust for that. Well, let's see that in Scripture. Turn to 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. Notice what it says. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. So here you are dealing with those who are all people including unbelievers if God perhaps will grant them pr- repentance if God here's why we need to be patient and long-suffering with those that resist because God might grant repentance now what if you just took second Peter 3: 9 what would that have to say God must grant repentance but it says God may not grant repentance we don't know. And we know for a fact that God doesn't... Does God grant repentance to everybody? Well, is everybody saved? No. So God doesn't grant repentance to everybody. And this verse says that He doesn't. If God perhaps will grant repentance, and why would they need God to grant them repentance? So that they may know the truth. Otherwise, they won't know the truth. That they may come to their senses, spiritual senses. Otherwise, they're spiritually insane. And escape the snare of the devil. They're already in that snare having been taken captive by him to do his will. What does that say about the unbeliever? The unbeliever is in, in, is a captive of Satan. They cannot set themselves free, and God may or may not grant them repentance. All right? So we've, we've brought some balance to that. And that may have raised some more questions, but at least it brought balance. That not all are going to come to repentance. Third passage. Maintain the biblical t- tension of 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4. Well, we already read 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4. God does desire that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. I mean, he that's His heart. That's His compassion. But that does not mean all men will be saved by any means or apart from hearing the gospel. Let's read the rest of 1 Timothy chapter 2. So we read verses 3 and 4. Let's read verses uh, uh, 3 through 7. So let me get there. You have it? All right, let's read the rest of this. 1 Timothy 3, or 2, I'm sorry, 2, 3 through uh, 7. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay, that's great, but look at verse 5. For there is one... God and one mediator between God and man, the Christ Jesus. Inclusive. Okay, so first of all, here's this wide open desire. He wants all men to be saved. But as soon as he says that, he restricts it to one person. So just because you have a desire that includes everybody, I want everybody to be saved. That doesn't mean... That God is unjust to restrict... Because you could say this. God's not just because if He desires everyone to be saved, He ought he to save them through Buddha, through Mohammed. He ought to just... In fact, it shouldn't even have to be through anyone. He ought to just sprinkle salvation dust on everybody. But the fact is, God doesn't do that. He limits it. Now, an inclusivist wouldn't have a problem with that. Oh, there is one mediator. They just don't have to know about it. Okay, well, let's see if Paul agrees who gave himself a ransom for all. Christ died for, uh, died for all. His sacrifice is sufficient for every person who's ever been born on this planet. But notice, to be testified in due time. Now he's restricted it even more. Hey, this is only going to be through Christ, only through his atonement, but it has to be preached. It has to be testified. It has to be shared. Notice what he says. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle, I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I'd circle that and say, I'm not an inclusivist. Paul is not an inclusivist. He says it will be preached in faith, Faith is necessary and truth Jesus is necessary. All right? So I ho- does that help? All right let me uh, let me step back for a moment. There's another passage here in the pastoral epistles. in uh, 1 Timothy 1, Jesus says or Paul says first Timothy 1 15 through17 you might want to flip over there flip over there real quick. First Timothy 1: 15 through17. Paul's speaking, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. Inclusivists would say, oh, I love that. I love it. And we would say, yeah, we love that because I'm I'm a sinner and I needed that. But notice what he says next, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy you know what this guy just said this paul who not only had creation conscience and culture but who was a believing jew needed to be saved if there was anyone that could have been saved without knowing the name of jesus wouldn't it be the apostle paul saul of tarsus but he's saying hey even i needed to accept jesus even I, who had all this revelation, who had all this sincerity, who was, you know, I was just... There was probably no one more sincere on the planet at that time, the apostle, than the uh, Saul the Pharisee. And he says, I need to be saved. Now, notice what he says. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. He's saying, look... How I got saved is a pattern for all people. Well, in Acts 9, how did he get saved? Apart from Jesus? No. Did he have to know who Jesus was? Yeah. Now, he he was lucky. He was an apostle. So, you know, he didn't have, you know, the likes of us sharing the gospel. Who shared the gospel with him in Acts 9? Who? Jesus shared the gospel. I mean, if you know there was one gospel presentation that went perfectly, that's one. But here's the point. Jesus didn't say, hey, Saul, you know, and, and you know what? What did Saul say to him? His first question to the risen Lord in Acts 9. Who are you? Who are you, Lord? I don't know you. And he didn't say, oh, that's all right. You know me. You just know me as the Jewish God. It's okay. You are sincere. Let me just kind of catch you up on what's been going on. No, he says, I'm Jesus whom you persecute so if that's the pattern then it's very obvious that people need to know jesus okay so those are some of the passages now let's look at some of the problems second thing in your notes there let's look at some of the problems what are some of the problems with this idea that god's love is the highest value so let's take a look at that very quickly first of all here's number one problem the focus on God's love for people as greater than any of his attributes, such as his holiness and justice. That's a problem. To focus on God's love for people as greater than any other of his attributes, such as holiness and justice. Listen, let me, I'll just real quickly destroy this, this false thinking. For all of eternity, what are the cherubim and the seraphim? And the, all the angelic creatures in heaven shouting around the throne. Are they saying, Love, 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 love? What are they shouting in Isaiah 6? Holy, holy, holy. And then you go to Revelation. And John goes up. I mean, thousands and thousands of years later, John gets taken up in a vision of heaven. And guess what they're still saying? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who is, who was, and who is to come. And it says day and night, 24-7, when we're sinning in heaven, they're saying, holy, holy, holy. When we're putting junk on Facebook that is immoral and is, is is just disgusting, and we're using cuss words and we're making fun of jokes and immorality, he is shouting, they are shouting, holy, holy, holy. That is who God is above all other things. He's holy. And what does that say about his love? It's a holy love. What does that say about His justice? It's a holy justice. What does that say about His mercy? It's a holy mercy. We can't understand it. It's not how I do mercy. It's not how I do love. You know how I do love? I do love. I love people that love me. I don't naturally love people that don't love me, but God loves. He has a holy love. Wow. Is that just powerful? So what would you say we should put here instead of God's love is the highest... Thing. what should we put god's holiness which includes love which includes mercy but also includes wrath and justice wow now let me take you to exodus 33 go to exodus 33 real quick listen beloved i say that in love out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks I would challenge each of you to look at what you text and look at what you do online and look at the pictures that you're putting up and look at your behavior and ask, what is this pouring out of? What kind of heart am I showing to a world when I name the name of a holy God? That's a freebie on this. But I'm telling you what, when I think of God's holiness, I think of my sinfulness. That's what Isaiah said. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. And beloved, in that technology, our unclean lips are going throughout the world. And we name the name of Jesus. Wow. Okay, look at ex- Exodus 33, 18 through 19. Exodus 33, 18 through 9, 19. Moses is speaking to the Lord face to face. I mean, he's in the presence of the Lord. He's got this relationship that's so intimate that he says in verse 18, and he said, please show me your glory. Now, that's just shorthand to say, tell me who you are. I mean, just give me the big picture. I want to see it all. Because, by the way, we could just as easily put up here, God's holiness equals God's glory. Because what are those angels doing? They're glorifying God by saying, holy, holy, holy. So he says, show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Well, you'd say, well, wait a minute. He didn't say my holy. He said my goodness, and that sounds merciful and compassionate. Okay. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. But notice what he says. I'm not doing this, Moses, because I have to, because I want you to know I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. You know what God's glory is? It's His sovereign grace to show mercy to whom He chooses and to not show mercy to whom He does not choose. Wow. Okay, then He goes down, Exodus 34, drop down, Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7. Now He's going to do it. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Now, Name here means character. It means the person, the glory. This is who he is. This is who I am. This is my character. And the Lord passed, by, passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Whoa, wait a minute. That sounds like love, right? Okay. Well, God is love. The Bible says that. But notice what else he says keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Oops, I wish he hadn't put that in. Do you see what we're saying? God's character is not just love. It's also wrath and justice and righteousness. It's all of that. Now, Paul is going to quote the same passage. Now, jump over to Romans 9. Paul's going to quote the same passage we just read, and he's going to apply it to this very question of, is God just in passing over some people? Is God just in not saving or choosing all people? This is the heart of what we're asking. Romans 9, 14. Romans 9, 14. Now, notice what it says. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Now, what he has just said, he said, look, I chose Jacob over Esau before they were even born. And human reason says, wait a minute, that's not fair. That's not fair. You chose one over the other. Not fair. And here's what Paul says, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not him who wills or of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Listen, these people are going to be saved. They're going to be saved for one reason. God has chosen to show them mercy, and he's chosen to show it through Christ and the preaching of the gospel. Now, notice, he says, For the Scripture says to the Pharaoh... For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name, my glory, my character, my holiness may be declared my mercy in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Now, if I just stopped right there, what question would raise in your mind? That's not fair. Okay, well, read verse 19. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? Who has resisted his will? And notice, Paul doesn't answer it. Here's what he says, verse 20. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath... "...and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called." Not of the Jews only, but of the Gentiles. Here's the point. He doesn't call everyone without exception, but he calls all without distinction." You can be rich, you can be poor, you can be Jewish, you can be uh, a a, a Muslim, you can be a Buddhist, you can be uh, educated, you can be not educated. Without distinction, he will call you to salvation. But how is he going to do it? Through the preaching of the gospel and your response by faith. You say, Chris, how do you put that all together? I can't. I just know what it says, and I just read it to you. And that is, there is no salvation apart from knowing Jesus and the preaching of the gospel and God choosing those whom will be saved. That's just what the scriptures say. So, have I proven enough that love is not the highest priority? The high, God is love, but he's, he's sovereign too. He's merciful and He's forgiving. So, let me go to number two on your notes. Another problem with this first axiom is this. God's heart desire is mistaken for His sovereign will. His, for, his compassion for sinners is seen as being equal to His actually choosing to save them. Here's the point. God has compassion for how many people on this planet? Everyone. But that doesn't mean that His choice of them is that He chooses all of them for salvation. God doesn't, uh, the Bible doesn't mistake God's desire for his sovereign will in salvation. Let me read Romans 9, 14 through 16 again. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Now turn to Romans 3 and we'll end with this. Turn to Romans 3. Romans 3, 3 through 6. So much of this answer is found in the book of Romans. But look at Romans 3, 3 through 6. He's he's, he's saying in Romans 3 that the Jews had an advantage because they had the Bible. They had the Old Testament. They had special revelation. They didn't just have these. They had also special revelation. He said they had an advantage. but But notice, verse 3, Romans 3, 3. For what if some... Jews did not believe. What if some of them did not believe? That is the Jews. Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? In other words, if some don't believe, does that mean that God has not been loving, faithful, and just? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar, as is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Here's the thing. When people judge God for being unfair... They're going to be overcome because God's words and God's will and God's heart is true. Now, notice he says, verse 5, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. He's saying, look, I'm thinking man's way. When God puts, destines these people and, and proclaims wrath upon them as unbelievers is he unjust can we can we say that he's unjust verse 6 certainly not for then how will god judge the world you know if god is so loving that he wants everybody saved then how can he ever condemn anyone to hell he can't but that's because god isn't just love he's sovereign he's holy he's righteous And He's just. He's love. He's mercy. He's compassion. So the final thing, and here's where we'll have to stop. I want you to leave with this thought. We must maintain the biblical tension between God's compassion being without exception. God's compassion is without exception. He has compassion on you this morning. He has given you breath and life, rain and sunshine, a job, maybe children, maybe a spouse, more than likely good health I mean we, we all have had God's compassion every single one of us every breath you take every morning you get up God has been merciful to us but you got to maintain God's compassion being without exception and God's choice being without distinction the fact is God does not choose without exception he chooses some but He chooses them without distinction. And so what that means this morning is that if you're here and you're unsaved, you have never publicly professed the name of Jesus. God has had compassion to bring you to this point. But now you're at a point of decision. Will you, will you place your faith in Jesus Christ? It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, religious, good, bad. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far you've been. He calls you without distinction, and He calls you to Jesus Christ. Place your faith in Him this morning. Please don't leave here this morning without knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And it's not because of you, and it's not because of me. It's because of His mercy. He is a loving God but he's a holy God too. Let's pray. Father, this is is just hard stuff. And it's because you're a God that is beyond my comprehension. It's just beyond it. But I'm so thankful that you've revealed yourself in your word. You've revealed it. And we can know what to do to call out on Your name. And Lord, I don't know what people's hearts are this morning, but in a class this big, I believe there's some here who have not publicly professed the name of Jesus. They have not publicly sealed that commitment through water baptism, saying, here's how I'm saved, the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I deserve death, but He has risen. He has raised me from the dead by faith in what He has done on the cross. So, Lord, I pray that you would call to those, you would draw them, and they would respond this morning with a faith that obeys and proclaims the name above all names, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen.